0: All right, well as you're getting seated, you can uh turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but before we do, I have a quick I don't want to call it an announcement because I don't like doing announcements in this spot. We just move from from worshiping the Lord about to get into his word. Uh, however, we we don't want to just be doers of the word or hearers of the word only. We don't want to just come in here and then and leave. We want to offer as many opportunities to come into the service of the kingdom and to continue to uh, press his kingdom forward. And so one of the ways we do that is by partnering with the Restore Network. And if you've been around a little while, you know a little bit about that. If not, um, this is a great chance for you to learn in this season as we have a particular event. So I'm going to ask my wife uh, to come on up here and and tell you a little bit about uh, an upcoming event, uh, the Restore Network Christmas Party. And uh, if you will pull up your app, there is a link there. Uh, On the home page, if you just scroll up, as soon as you open the app, it'll be there, and there's a couple of particular opportunities that you can sign up for right there, but she'll tell you a little bit about them.
1: Well, you almost told them all of it.
0: I'm sorry. (laughs) You'll have that with me.
1: Um, Yeah, so one of the things that we do at the Restore Network, we serve foster families, local foster families, and um, one of the ways that we do that, the ways that we honor their decision in saying yes to a very difficult thing is by throwing a big Christmas party for them. And so it's going to look a little different this year, as everything else is. But um, one thing that's going to stay the same is that we will have it. And each kid is going to get a gift. And so um, if you would like to help us out with that, we could use all the help that you could give. Um, There are many different ways that you can do that. One is that, I don't know, if did you put the wish list on the app? Mm -hmm. Okay, one is the Amazon wish list that we've created. Um, Several of these gifts have already been purchased, and it's amazing how quickly that happened. Um, But there are still some gifts remaining on that wish list that's on the app. Um, Those will be sent directly here, shipped here, and um, another way that you can serve is by helping wrap those gifts. And so there is a volunteer link on the app as well, and there are many different um, days and volunteering opportunities um, for the Christmas party. So one is wrapping the gifts. Um, I can't remember which day that is, but it's on there. Um, And then uh, one is like helping prepare little craft kits um, that we will give each kid, and, um, and then actually volunteering or decorating. Oh, my gosh, decorating. That's going to be a big thing. Um, so if you're gifted in that, or even if you're not gifted in that, we can give you a very easy task uh, to help decorate for the party. Um, and then serving at the party, we'll need some volunteers to help hand the children a thing at each booth. It's going to be like a Polar Express uh, theme, and so they'll just kind of, like a little assembly line, just kind of move through and out, and then at the end we'll have Santa. We have a really amazing Santa and Mrs. Claus that come to do pictures with the kids. So if you'd like to get involved, um, the ways to do that is on the app, and we'd really appreciate it.
0: All right, turn to First Corinthians 15. Some of y'all know, some of you heard me talk about this, but uh, once upon a time I sold life insurance for like six weeks. It was terrible. I was terrible at it. It, was, it wasn't, it, yeah. So in that gig, um, it was mostly the company. It was, uh, no, no offense to any of you who sell that. I believe in life insurance and all of that. It was really the, the particular company that I was working for because in that gig, my role was to find a way to what I felt like was weasel my way into a family's home. Um, and part of the reason I even said yes to the gig is they're like, hey, we have these leads and people have already said they're interested in this. You know, so all you got to do is call them and, and sell them. I'm like, okay, cool. If somebody my life insurance. I can call them and offer our product. But what I found out later was, no, no, no. These people said yes to like some free things because they worked in unions in different places and they were like, hey, do you want some discounts on your prescriptions and would you like a free accidental death and dismemberment policy? And people are like, well, sure. So they fill out a card for that. Well, then I'm there to deliver their free benefits, right? Which is me calling, setting up an appointment. Hey, I need to come in person and deliver this for you. They're like, why can't you just mail it? Well, I really need to be there. So anyway, I'm trying to weasel my way into their home and then once I get there, I show them this really emotional presentation about, have you thought about what it's going to be like for your family when you die. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to leave them with all this burden and all this debt. And, and so it was like, okay, get them into the hand in this. And then, and then, okay, offer, you know, like make them think about the hard things of life and then, uh, you know, provide a way to sort of soften that, that blow. And so uh, I did not last long. I went to Aldi and was a much better fit there. But, um, but in that, like the, the, the idea behind that is, okay, you got to think about this hard thing you're going to have to deal with it, right? It's coming. can't get out of it. So here's a way to sort of soften that blow, especially for your family. And okay, so then the, then the idea is, okay, well, how much is that going to cost me then? All right, what, what do I got to give, right? Okay, all right, I'll take this much and, and put it toward that. And, you know, still the idea is to, you know, these people are still trying to get as much as they can out of this life. But okay, that's coming, so i got to prepare a little bit. So, so here, take, take what I must, and, and I'll put it toward, toward that. And, and here's, here's why I, I talk, because Paul is going to shift here in this passage to a, an emotional and loaded plea for Christians to understand, to stand firm, to claim with all that they are, the impact, the implications, and the... Um, The truth of the resurrection of Christ and how it matters not just for now or not just for our future when we get to heaven, right? It's because sometimes we we package the gospel in a similar way, like where we we come in and we force people to think about death, right? Well, you're going to die someday. Do you want when you die, you know, you've got these two choices, heaven and hell, and you know you don't want to go to hell, do you? Okay, well then then here here's the cost. Pray this prayer and and come to church some, and maybe you know stop saying some of those words and watching some of those shows or, or whatever, and then you'll you'll get to heaven whenever you die and we sort of pose it in this way and, and, and when we do that, the, the, the faith doesn't have an impact on our here and now. It doesn't have an impact. It doesn't transform our lives. That, that insurance that I, I showed or that I sold people, you know, it didn't transform their lives. It gave them some peace. It gave them some, some peace of mind, and that's a good thing. But, but their day-to-day wasn't transformed by what I gave them. And so often, that's how we package the gospel, that, that it's simply about what happens when, when you die, and there's these two alternatives, and you don't want it to be this one, so you better go here, and, and we, okay, we'll, we'll sign that. We'll do that. Our payment is to show up at church somewhat regularly and, you know, fill, whatever, whatever those things are, whatever the conditions of, of that is. And, and, you know, it doesn't radically transform our here and now, but, you know, we're making plans for the future. And Paul is about to move into, um, like I said, a, a loaded uh, plea with the Corinthian church. And so, um... As we look at this, I want us to think about the idea that the gospel is not just about getting out of hell when we die. Now, hear me. It is that. Amen? It is not less than that. Okay? it is just more than that. It is much, much more than that. So much so that it should transform our here and now in a a totally different view of things. And that's what Paul is going to get to. He's going to be talking about, he's not just talking about this, you know, future ethereal thing. He's talking about how they're living right now, but he's going to point to the resurrection and the implications thereof. So, if you would, read with me. We're going we're gonna to walk through this, and it is loaded, and I, am, I have a daunting task to try to get us out of here at any sort of reasonable time, because there's a lot here. But it's all one big thought, so I want to get through it. So we're going we're gonna to read it together and make some thoughts as we go. And as we talked about last week, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it, it, is, it is the pivotal event in history, and what our Faith hangs on and really what the whole world hangs on. Tim Keller says that, that the, the resurrection is the hinge on which the world pivots. And he goes on to say that if, if, um, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. Okay, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? That's why books and works like the Case for Christ, I like recommended last week, is still on your digital uh, bulletin on the resources. There are so crucial because sometimes we get caught up on some of these older, these other stories and these different things. When really, if we if we go and start at the resurrection. And if we we have to deal with that evidence and have to deal with the historicity of all that that went on around Jesus' life, death, burial, and then resurrection, if that is true, then we have to accept all the rest of the scriptures and all the rest of what he has taught. But if it is not, as Paul is going to say, then we don't have to worry about any of it. And so it is not just about, okay, what, what does it look like at the end? It is about, okay, it transforms where we're headed. It transforms not just this, okay, you know, get what you can out of life here, but then you know, you got to make some plans for the afterlife. It is it is a, a pivotal tr- shift in our hope, shift in what we're we're clinging to, and that's exactly what Paul is going to talk about. So, he's already talked about the evidence of the resurrection, and now he's going to talk about the significance of the resurrection starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, "Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is what he's been proclaiming, is what the gospel has been proclaiming. So he says, if that's true, then how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, and this was a common belief for the Corinthian people, for the Greek um, philosophy of the day, and even you know in, in the Jewish world, it wasn't super uh, talked about to have this individual. Everybody's going to rise from the dead. It was more this general: there will be one day. And okay, they, they didn't have a good grasp on that. And so, so Paul is is, is saying, hey. We've proclaiming this, but how now there's there's people who are saying, but there really is no resurrection. Like that's like that's just this uh, you know, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but we're not all gonna do that. And it's really rooted in this idea of Gnosticism, right? That we've talked a little bit about that, and and uh, and if you've been in Caleb's class, he talked a little bit about that in apologetics, it was this idea that that really, you know, what matters is not the material world, but the, what matters is the spiritual world and what's going to transcend and move beyond. You know, the day that we take our last breath is not our physical bodies, but rather this um, disconnected spiritual existence, and and that plays out in different ways in how you view heaven and how you view what is the afterlife, what is eternity going to be like. And so Paul is, is dealing with some people who are saying, "Hey, we're not all going to rise from the dead. Like that's that's just this kind of you know story or this thing that we we kind of point to as validated our faith, but." We're not going to rise from the dead. And Paul says that is, you're, you're pulling at the, the jinga piece that can't come out of this, this deal, right? You, if you take the resurrection out, then all of it becomes meaningless. It's, it's cutting off the branch that you're sitting on if you pull out the resurrection. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead... Meaning individuals, meaning the people of our own bodies, then not even Christ has been raised. Now that's a bold statement, but what they're saying, what he's saying, is if if there's if we're not going to be raised, if there's no resurrection from the dead after we die, if that's not a future event that is coming, then not even Christ has been raised. It's not you get to claim this about Jesus, and he had a bodily resurrection, but then the rest of us are just going to live in this ethereal, you know. Um, non-physical state. He says, if that's true, then not even Christ was raised, even though he's just talked about Christ being raised and being uh, seen by over 500 people at different times and places and people putting their hands in his wounds and all of that has just been talked about in the previous verses. But he says, listen, if you're going to say that we are not raised, then you're also saying that Christ hasn't been raised. And he says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith Is in vain. Now, that is a big statement that we need to, that needs to give us pause because what he's saying is if Christ has not been raised, then it's foolish for me to be up here right now. It's foolish for you to be here right now. And more than that, Paul is saying, I've become a liar. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he would raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's the second time he said that. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So what he's saying here is, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised, and that means that the gospel has lost all meaning, and that that we should... Pack up and go home. That it's all in vain. He's going to go on to to make that point even clearer. Verse 17. "Your, Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are to be pitied most. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, Christianity cannot be categorized as just another option on the buffet of religions and it can't be reduced to just a, a set of moral principles and a set of things that, okay, well, if it's good for you to live that way, you know, that, that it's one path amongst many to a, a spiritual life or, or, you know, to a moral life. Paul says, no, 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 that is not what this is. If you take away the central hope of the gospel, which is that there will be a physical resurrection, then you're taking away all of the hope of the gospel. As, as Micah said a few weeks ago, as we, we've seen all throughout the Bible, if you're looking at it, this is not a set of, of moral principles to do better and achieve more in your life. This is not, uh, you know, the, the, the handbook of how to do life well. It, it is the, the story, the revelation of God saving a sinful, broken, and far off, hopeless people. That it, it is, those are fundamentally different things of what, what God is doing and has done in history and will do in the future is a fundamentally different way to look at the scriptures than to go, okay, I, 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 need, I need some principles for life. Let me, let me dive in here and let me see what I can get. Now, again, it's not less than that. There are proverbs, there are wis- there's wisdom literature, there's plenty to, to pull from that absolutely will make your life better if you apply that. But if you reduce it to just that, then Paul says, man, we're not only is it is it hopeless is in vain paul says we are to be pitied what's he saying if christ hasn't been raised if there is no resurrection for us coming in the future then when the world looks at us and you know sort of shakes their head at those silly you know those sweet little christians that think they're you know think they've got it figured out or they think they're going to have a hope you know on this other side then then he says, they're right. If, if you take away the resurrection, then they are right, and we should be pitied. He goes on to say that our faith is futile, and we're still in our sins. What does that mean? Listen, we just sang about, we rejoice often. One of the, the most compelling things about Christianity is that your sins can be forgiven. Right, The world is confronted. everybody knows like you' if you're honest with yourself, no matter what narrative you've sold the rest of the world, you know you're a sinner, don't you? You know that you are not what you should be. you know that you have not measured up. you know that there is something missing in your life. You know there is shame and there is guilt, and there is a uh, something that 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 longs for. Redemption inside of you. Whether you're a Christian or not, everybody knows that. And we celebrate and, and talk often about the forgiveness of sins that, that the cross offers. And we should, don't get me wrong, we absolutely should talk about that, that Jesus took our sins, that his blood provides the forgiveness for our sins. But what Paul is saying is that if he didn't come back to life, if there's not the resurrection on the other side of that, then it means nothing. If without the resurrection, the cross is just a sad ending to one more messianic figure or one more good leader's run here on this earth. Like If if he doesn't come back, if he's not resurrected, then he's just lumped in with the rest of those figures who had a following, who said we were going to set people free, and then come to an early death at the hands of the Roman government. And that's it. That's the end of the story. It's only the resurrection that transformed Christianity into a movement that has lasted and has advanced and continues to advance all throughout the world and so if we're going to rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins we need to anchor that hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is the resurrection of Christ that validates that he was who he said he was it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that validates the work that he did on the cross It is what seals that work of forgiveness when he shed his blood and when his body was broken. It is the resurrection that brings validity to that. It is the resurrection that that makes him the Messiah, the King of Kings. And Paul says, if you take that away, then we are still in our sins. So make no mistake, you can't. If you're here and you're just thinking, okay, I'll just try out this Christianity thing and maybe it'll help me figure my life out. Maybe I'll, I'll get you know some some good news, some self help or whatever. Paul says there's there's none of that to be had here. That is not the point of the Scriptures. The Scriptures' point is that Jesus has come, that he conquered death, that he took our punishment for sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus took the death upon himself on the cross and that he came back to life as what he's going to say in the next bit is the first fruit. So so again, this is going to broaden our, our perspective, broaden our view on the resurrection and what Jesus did on that day. So often we think about it, okay, Jesus came back, you know, from the dead and that's what gives power to the cross and we sort of leave it there. We, we don't think about as that is the first fruits is what Paul is going to be saying in just a moment. That is what kind of, transforms the gospel message into something that God is actively doing and will one day culminate. And so in these next few verses, Paul is going to go in and remind them of the big idea, the big movement of Scripture that God has been doing and how the resurrection is central and pivotal and essential to that. So verse, four, verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. If you are familiar with, you know, Old Testament scripture, or even just you know, agriculture in general, this idea of first fruits is sort of as early harvest to, to check the quality of of what is that you know, um, agricultural harvest. What's it going to be like? What are, what are those, the first fruits, and is sort of be indicative of the quality that is to come? And so he says, the resurrection is not just something that seals the work of the cross and that you know, and then allows us to get into heaven. It is it is the first fruits of something that is to come for all of us. All who have fallen asleep. That's Bible speak for died. Verse 21. For as by a man came death. He's talking about Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. What he's talking about here is we, we, we know this idea of, of we are all sinners. We're all born into sin. That is fundamentally a part of what will have to be redeemed in us is the nature of sin. And we got that from Adam. Adam is appointed by God to be sort of this representative Of all of mankind, and and what we inherit from him is our sinful nature. And so we're familiar with that doctrine. We need to be just as familiar with Christ being the new Adam, and as as through Adam all receive sin and death, through Christ all who receive him as Lord and Savior will receive resurrection. Verse 23 But each in his own order, Christ, so he's saying, Verse 22 For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what he's saying is, this is going to be something, what Jesus experienced when he was resurrected from the grave is something that we are all going to experience. That's part of what signifies in baptism, our, our being raised to walk in newness of life, joining Christ in his death, burial, dying to our old self, being buried as Christ was buried you know, under the water, and then raised to walk in newness of life. We are, are united with him both in his burial, his death, but also in his resurrection. Romans 5 and 6 talks a ton about this, but... Paul says the same thing is true about our resurrection. And what he's saying is in each the right order. So some people want to look at, okay, well, if if God's going to make all this better, if this is all headed toward Him. Uh, if God's really in control and if he's going to one day put all of the sin to rest, then what is, he, what is he waiting on? What is happening in this moment? Why does hope seem to be slipping through our fingertips in a season like this where there's chaos, there's a pandemic, there's tension in our world? And what he's saying is, listen, there is an order to what God is doing. Yes, Christ has come, and yes, he's been resurrected from the grave, and yes, that is the future that we all hold. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what he is doing as we're going to see in the next few verses, is he is bringing about the kingdom. He's bringing an opportunity for sinners to receive grace and forgiveness through repentance. And he is conquering his enemies one after one after after the other. And eventually, he says, then comes the end, verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all this is confusing, I'll explain in just a minute. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul is on a roll. He's fired up because these these Corinthians have missed the the entire crux of what the gospel hope is supposed to provide for them. It is not just this, okay, you know, come and and be a part of this religion, and then, you know, you get to experience this, you know, disconnected afterlife, you know, after you die and whatever. No, no, Paul is saying, you're missing what he's been doing, that, that he made this world to be good in the very beginning. He made it good. He made his... People to be image bearers, to rule on the earth with him. And that is good. And that is what he's going to restore. That's what we're headed. That's where it started. And that's where we're headed. is a, a good earth, a good world that God has made and God has blessed. And that we as his people are ruling with him. But what happened is when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We were all separated from him. But what he's been doing since then is launching this plan of Redemption. And his plan of redemption is not just to snatch us off of this world so that he can burn the whole thing and we can live in, you know, this disconnected heavenly place. No, no. What is, is happening, what we're headed toward, we talked about this in the Kingdom Come series, what we're headed toward is a new heaven, a new earth, where, where heaven comes down to earth after God puts all things to rights. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, <clears throat> then comes the end when, when he delivers, when he's talking about Jesus, the kingdom. To God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So here's where we are. We're in this tension. We're in this moment of disruption, of sickness, of division, of sin, of death. Paul is saying... This is not how it's supposed to be, and this is not how it will end, and we are not just getting off of this deal. He's coming to make this whole deal right. It says when he comes to the end, he's going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So the hope that we have in Jesus is that he's coming back, right? One of the reasons we take communion is we're supposed to take it in remembrance of him until he returns, that we, we, we not only reflect on the cross and what he's done for us in the past, but that he is coming again. And as we look toward his coming again, we know that on that day, the trumpet will sound, he's going to burst forth through the clouds, and he's going to make all things right. He's going to put to death. He's going to bring judgment upon the world, destroying, it says, every rule and every authority and power. That's what he's going to do. That's what we're looking ahead That one day he will come and he will put all the evil, all the sin, all of the darkness. He'll cast it out. He'll bring perfect judgment. He will destroy it. He will handle this. And whatever this is, right? Fill in the blank. Whatever evil will befall our earth next. Whatever evil will befall our country next. Whatever evil will move like Christ will put it to death. But in the meantime, the reason we wait, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Now, this is difficult for us to understand, but Ephesians 6 is a, is, a, is a passage we look to a lot. And it says that, don't forget, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But it is against the spiritual powers and darkness, the principalities of this world. What does that mean? Is that the, the battle that, that Jesus is fighting is not the one that you and I could see with our eyes. Okay? It is not the one that is being fought with between you know, Democrats and Republicans. It's not the one that's being fought with, with different sides of mask, no mask. It's not the one that's being fought with you know, racial tension and social justice or not. It's not the one that's being fought with, with freedom around the world. It's not the same battle. It has implications on all of that. Okay? And it affects all of that, but it is different. Jesus is fighting a battle that is unseen to us. It is the spiritual forces, and that is what his agenda is. And he knows what we really need is, is for that battle to be won, for that those powers to be put to rest. And so that is what he's doing, and he's coming after individuals' hearts. He's coming after individuals' souls. The, the movement of the kingdom is not about a political you know rise of this leader or even, that's what the disciples thought often they were like hey you about to restore the kingdom of you about to restore the kingdom of Israel all the time they were asking him that and Jesus says no no like i'm not headed to an earthly throne i'm not headed after those rulers or this deal i'm headed after the enemy of your souls the enemy of darkness the the thing that, that is behind all of this and one day he'll put him to rest his mouth will be shut he will be cast out forever And if he came back and did that right now, it would be all who have not yet repented of their sins would would be done away with. They would be cast into hell, and rightfully so, because that's where you and I deserve to be, apart from Jesus Christ. So if he comes back and does that now, that's, that's our end. So what's he doing? Well, he's waiting. It says all of his enemies are going to be made his footstool. This is common language in the Scripture, but it's difficult for us to understand. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And his kingdom is advancing. He's told his disciples to go forward, to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 24, 14 talks about once this gospel has been preached to all nations, then the end will come. What's God doing right now? Is he fretting about, you know, the direction of America in the next few years? Is he fretting about this ruler on the other side of the world? Is he fretting about, you know the things that are so common to us on the news. No, no. What he's doing, what he's moving in is to send his church into the dark places of the world. And what that primarily means is into the dark places of sinners' hearts so that they could be saved. So that the, the ruler that has, has drawn them into deception, that has put them in chains and shackles to their own sin, to their own pursuit of power or money or comfort or pleasure, that those enemies would be put under his feet that all who he has elected to be a part of his family all that he has said you will be mine that he will get all of them none of them will be snatched from his hand he and he has people from every tribe tongue and nation from every race and they will all be gathered to him nothing will stop that the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that is the work that Jesus was doing is doing and will continue no matter what happens to america no matter what happens to fill in the blank country. Jesus is going to advance his kingdom. His church will prevail. And what that means is sinners will be saved. Rulers will be toppled off of the thrones of their hearts. As Jesus, the resurrected king, comes and says, hey, freedom is in me. Freedom is in me. You come to me. And so that's what he's doing. And it says when he is finished with that, when that job is all done, and we don't know when, right? We don't know when that's going to be. But when that is all done, he'll come back and handle the rest of this. And the last enemy to be destroyed, it says in verse 26, is death. So once he's, the gospel's been preached to everyone that he has ordained for, for them to hear and every sinner that he is ordained to be saved, has come into his family. Then the end will come, and the last enemy that he will destroy is death itself, And we'll talk more about that next week. But he says in verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is who Jesus is. He is on the throne. He is in control. And he is a conquering king. He is not running for election. He is on the throne. And he does not ask. He is a conquering king. We don't have a category for that in our day and age. But Jesus is the king who sets out to conquer the territory that he has his sights on. And that is the hearts of sinners and and that is what he's doing and it says that one day all things will p- be put under his feet in subjection and he has this sort of caveat that he goes on explaining Basically saying, with the exception of God himself, God the Father. And so he's pointing to, basically, that the confusing language there in 27 through uh, in 28 is, is he's saying, hey, there'll be faithfulness in the Trinity. There's this beautiful deal where God sends the Son to go and conquer the world, to deliver the kingdom, to, to do his work, and then Jesus finishes that work, and he's going to deliver it back to the Father. And in that moment, Jesus has conquered all that he set out to conquer, and he'll fall back in And be subject to God as Father just like he always has. So he's saying Jesus is not even about rising to this point of overtaking. No, the the Trinity is going to have unity. It's going to have a mutual deference. And it's this beautiful thing where God sends Jesus to go. Jesus goes and delivers the kingdom back to the Father. And then all of us fall back in place in worship of the King, in worship of God himself. And that's going to be a glorious and glorious day. And that is what we are headed to. So Paul is saying, this is the point of the gospel. That's where we're all headed, is that one day we'll all be there physically, literally, in a resurrection body. We'll talk more about what does that look like next week. But Paul's saying, that's the hope of the gospel. Don't take that away. If you take that away, you take the whole hope of the gospel away. Verse 29, he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is a super controversial verse here that has been interpreted many different ways. It's sort of a hinge point of some of the Mormon practices of people being baptized on behalf of people who have already died, and it has been misinterpreted and has confused many scholars. There's a few different um, beliefs as to what this is, and as with any hard text, we looked at this with a few other passages in Corinthians. We don't want to take one verse and build a whole, you know, doctrine, theology, and church off of one verse, do we? No, we don't. What do we want to do when we have a hard passage? When a passage is difficult and it's not clear, we want to let what? Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, so we want to interpret what is not clear in light of what is clear. Okay, so when we look at a passage like this, there's a couple of different interpretations. Some say that there was a practice of, of, of the Corinthian believers who were being baptized sort of vicariously on behalf of people who had been saved, but never got a chance to be baptized. Sort of like the thief on the cross, right? Trust in Jesus, going to be with Jesus in paradise, but never got a chance to go through the physical baptism. And so people were saying, well, I'll, I'll be baptized for him. Okay. Maybe that was happening. Maybe it wasn't. Paul doesn't really condone or condemn. He's sort of going to use this as an illustration of, hey, why does that matter? Here's, and then there's another um, sort of interpretation that I tend to agree with more based on the context, based off of what It was being talked about even back in verse 18, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What I think he's saying is here there's a common um, angle that people take or leverage that people use when you're talking about, hey, you should be saved. Well, we talk about a reunion, right, with our loved ones. We talk about, hey, and oftentimes it is when someone in our life dies that we are close to and we're mourning that the gospel brings a hope of a reunion, right? And even as we're trying to explain this to kids and to loved ones, is that, hey, they have gone to be with Jesus, but there's good news. You can see them again. Well, how do you see them again? Well, you have to trust Jesus as your Savior. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, then you'll go to where Jesus is, and that's where grandma will be, and you'll get to be reunited with grandma or dad or mom or friend, fill in a blank. We, we sort of use this and, and I'm not even saying that's fully wrong. It's just an angle we look at there where we say, okay, these people have gone on ahead. They've, they've already died. If you want to see them again, one of the, the only way you can do that is trusting in Jesus. Now, that implies that they are in Jesus as well, right? That, and, and, and here's where this gets at the hope that, we, that you see universally longed for in our world. Whether people are hostile toward Christianity or not, you see in celebrities and people commentating on culture that when someone dies, when someone, you see the language in their laments. So you, you look at you know, celebrities online or whatever. When, they, when someone is lost, they talk about, you know, until we meet again, or they talk about having got another angel. They, they, everybody, whether they're Christians or not, longs for this sort of hope beyond the grave, don't they? They long for this reunification. And, and I think what Paul's saying is, here, there's, there's people who the very reason that they came to faith is because they lost someone they loved and they wanted a hope of, of seeing them again. Now, God can use that sort of faith. God can use that sort of coming to him to, to bring to them to an understanding of salvation. But simply, I think Paul is saying, hey, there's this practice, whether they're doing it vicariously and wrongly by being baptized you know, on their behalf, like literally vicariously, substitutionarily, through, you know, this person died, didn't get to be baptized, so I'll do it. If that was a practice, it didn't last long. We don't see it mentioned elsewhere, and we didn't see it lasting into into church history. But regardless, whether it's that or it's these people that are are saying, hey, if you want to be reunited, you need to come this way. Either way, what Paul is going to do is use that against them to say, if the resurrection isn't true, then why would you do that? Right? If the resurrection isn't true, why would you be baptized on on the hope of being reunited? If there's not a bodily resurrection, then that, that hope doesn't exist. So what you're doing is silly. So Paul is pulling at some other things that they've sort of built their faith on and saying, hey, if if the resurrection isn't true, then then that doesn't make any sense. Don't do that. Why would you do that? He goes on. He's going to move on in verse 30 to say, and then also, why are we in danger every hour? What he's saying is, listen, if... If the resurrection isn't true, if there's not that hope beyond this life, then why are we suffering? Why are we doing hard things? Why are we giving of our lives in such a way? Paul says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die every day. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's sort of back to this evidence and proof of the, the, gospels, or the, the disciples making up the gospel, we looked at evidence for that last week, like why would they do that? What did they stand to gain? Why would you make up a story like that in order to you know, live your life in poverty and, and in persecution and eventually die a martyr's death? Like they didn't gain any monetary or comfort physical sake. And Paul's saying the same thing, like listen, if this is not true, if we're not headed toward a resurrection, why am I suffering the way that I am suffering? You look at 2 Corinthians 11 and Paul will will run through a list of his sufferings and they are intense. Multiple shipwrecks, multiple imprisonments, multiple times people pelting him with rocks in order to kill him. Paul says, "If if we're not headed toward a resurrection, what good is this? Why would I keep going in this? And this is when he says, I die every day, he's talking about the Luke 9:23 when Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, you're going to take up your cross daily. You're going to die to yourself. Paul's saying, I'm living that. I'm doing that. I'm calling you guys to do that. Why would I call you to die to yourself if this is the only thing that we have? If this life is all that matters, then don't die to yourself. Paul says, go ahead and eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all that there is, then don't spend your life Doing Christian things, that doesn't make any sense. Paul says, go ahead, enjoy. There's, there's other things. Paul, Paul is saying, I die to myself. He's not just talking about the physical sufferings. Paul chose not to get married. Paul chooses not to indulge in many things that are okay for this world, many earthly pleasures. Why? He puts them off because he's headed toward a greater hope, treasures in heaven, treasures in this next life. And Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, then I am a fool, and we all should be pitied. Verse 33, do not be deceived. He's going to quote a Greek poet Name I think, Menander. He says, bad company ruins good morals. This is something Paul is known to do, is to pull uh, pieces of their culture and say, hey, you've heard this here. Well, think deeply about it. Okay, you've heard this here. He says, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. This a strong language. I want you to, to imagine the pastor saying this to his people. Hey, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. He's talking about a church. He's talking about a people gathered. He says, wake up. There's people sitting here and they have no idea what the true hope of the gospel is. Why? Because you've allowed different cultural philosophies and different ideologies to bleed in and to inform what you're doing as a church. And he says, and as a result, there's people here that are a part of your movement as a church, they're a part of your body as a church, and they don't even know God. What are you doing? Wake up from your drunken stupor. Listen, church, if there's ever a more relevant text and a more relevant plea for us today, it is this. It is this, listen to the news, listen to the debates. This is, the, this is right, we need to be doing this social justice movement. No, no, we need to be fighting for this. No, no, we need to be doing this. Paul says, listen, if that bleeds into the church, if that hijacks the mission of the church, what's at stake is the very knowledge of God. So wake up, church, wake up. We are not called to build any other kingdom other than the kingdom of heaven. And it is not to say that there, that, that, listen, we're not going to talk about this, but that has implications for how we vote, what we do. That has implications for that. But primarily, we do not lose sight, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God's hope does not rest in anything other than Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected, and Him coming again. She says, wake up, church, wake up from your drunken stupor. And do not go on sinning. What does he mean by that? Don't don't keep thinking that this life is all that matters. So often we treat our faith like that life insurance deal. Okay, what do I got to pay? What's it going to cost me? Okay, I'll come to church. Okay, I'll do this. But in in reality, we're still thinking our treasure is here. Because that's the whole deal with life insurance, right? Like, okay, you still want to try to get everything you can out of this life. Enjoy it. Earn as much. Conquer as much, right? But that's coming, so you've got to make arrangements for that too. So often we make our faith like that. Okay, what, what's it going to cost me? What, we, we, we still think that the meat and the substance of our life, of our calling, of our hope is about here. And then heaven is just, well, we've got to make arrangements for that. And that'll sort of be this letdown of sorts. Well, and you know, once this is over, this is the real party. Once this is over, I mean, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go with the fire. I'm, so I'll go to heaven. That is a reduction that is absolutely, Paul says, you're missing the whole point in the hope of the gospel because what he's doing is that all of this that we long to be done with, all of this that we hate, all the division, all the sickness, all the, the deception that we bemoan every day, Jesus knows. He's got his eyes set on it, and he's going to handle it. And one day, he will handle it all, and we'll live with him forever. And we won't miss anything about this world. We're not going to miss eating steak. You know why? Because we'll still eat steak. We'll talk about this next week. But there will be a very physical, tangible nature to our body. We're not going to miss anything. We're not going to miss pleasure. Why? Because any pleasure that we enjoy here, including sex, is just a, 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 a something to point us to the greater reality. And it won't be that we're going to miss out. Oh, man, I really wish we could do that. No, no, no because it will be fulfilled a million times over, and our hearts will explode with the true joy of what Christ has for us in heaven. And so we long for that. So it's not, okay, how much do I gotta give to get that? It's okay, how much can I give? All right. It's not just how many chips do I gotta take off the top so that I don't have to you know, suffer whenever I, I leave this world. It's, oh, he's given me a greater hope, a hope of resurrection. So how much can I give? How can I spend my life giving all that I have so that all my hope is anchored there. So that all my hope is is placed there. So that I'm all in on what Jesus is doing in the resurrected eternity. Let's pray. God, I'm going to leave this with you and our the, the hearts of our people. What you would do with this, Lord, Lord, um, I pray that I'm just going to leave that in your hands. And I trust that you are the God of a new hope in the resurrection, a hope beyond all of this. And I pray that us as your people would be shaped and formed by that really and tangibly today. That the other fears, worries, idols, pursuits would all fall away as we fix our eyes on you, our living and resurrected hope. We ask this in your name now. Amen.